We are going to look at Isaiah 63, verse 15, through chapter 64, verse 4. This is not a typical Christmas sermon, but it actually is a very profound Christmas sermon for us. I don't know how many of you, I know a lot of you actually, are uh, on Facebook, and uh, one of the things that I've noticed in the year 2020 is that uh, people are noticing just the amount of bad news that's showing up on their on their feed as they read through their Facebook account, and so you had this this thing that's been happening. Um, and I see it in my timeline many, many times. People will say 2020 is just filled with bad news from so many different sectors. Why don't we take a break from that and focus on some good things? Why don't we focus on, I've seen things like, let's talk about some of our best, our favorite books that we've read. Let's, let's talk about some of our favorite experiences in the year 2020. Let's talk about some of the best movies that we've been able to watch. And so what they're trying to do is to push aside all the bad news that's coming in through 2020 and focusing in on happier things, and some things are of good news. And I I was reading this one a couple weeks back from one of my friends on Facebook, and let me just read what this individual says. I feel like 2020 has been a year of negativity. From me personally, from social media, from the media, and literally everyone that I know, there is negativity literally everywhere. So I felt inclined to post 20 positive things that happened this year. And then here are some of my favorite positives from 2020. And I'm not, there's, he gives 20 of them. I'm just going to read a, a few of these. We only have one child in diapers for the first time in seven years. That's a good one. My kids have learned to be friends with each other. That's a good one. We have, we have hired our first family babysitter ever, and so we get to have so much needed time away from our children, even if it is only Christmas, only to Christmas shop for those children. We did not have a baby this year. We children are my our children are finally for the most part all finally sleeping through the night for the first time in 5 years. So here's here's a, here's a, some parents saying let's focus on some of the good news, some of the good things that have happened in in 2020 and what I'm finding is, in my own timeline, I'm seeing all this bad news show up, negativity showing up, and it is having an impact upon my, my psyche, the way I think, the way I feel. And so I've even done some of those things, saying, hey, why don't we, why don't we take a break from the negativity and focus on some of the, some of the good things that we've experienced And I can't recall a time in an entire year where I was feeling more thirsty for good news. And not not just in my Facebook feed, 
but I'm thirsty for good news in the very depths of my heart because something about the year 2020 is it brings out from within us things that were already there that are often covered by external good news. And so when you have a difficult year like 2020, suddenly you don't have that to distract you, those good things to distract you from the thirst for good news that we have within the, uh, within the inside. And so 2020 has kind of forced us to think about what really is good news, and we've recognized that it, it is something that we actually desperately need. I was talking to a medical doctor recently who told me that he has seen so many patients this year that he has not seen in previous year years who are saying, I've never felt more depressed. I've never felt more stressed. I've never felt more levels of anxiety and angst, and I don't know what to do with it. The way I've dealt with stressful circumstances in the past are not working, and it's kind of an unrelenting feeling of anxiety and stress that I'm feeling. And he's seeing that almost across the board, that people, because of what's coming in from the outside, is opening up what they feel on the inside. I have a teacher in my household. My wife has taught for many years, and then I've talked to many other teachers within this congregation and outside this congregation who are saying things that, and they will say, they have never said this before, that in 2020, they have found that they actually do not enjoy going to work. Now, if you know teachers who are committed to their profession, teachers love teaching, but 2020 has been a year where teachers themselves are saying they do not enjoy going to work because it is hard, it is difficult. And so they force themselves to go through each day as a teacher. You have college students, and I've, I've, I've heard this from a number of teachers and college administrators, that they are having uh, just an increased, a significantly increased number of college students who are coming to their office and they're saying they are depressed or they're having panic attacks. This isn't something that's happening to a few students, but it's actually happening to many, many students on many, many different college campuses. Is that they're being faced with circumstances, unrelenting circumstances that are, have become the occasion for them to experience panic attacks that they have never experienced before. You have singles within our church family and across churches in America that are really struggling with the isolation, the increased isolation that they are feeling now. And and they want to be connected with those who can encourage them. And so what they find themselves longing for is good news. We could say the same for all groups within our congregation. We are a people in 2020 that find ourselves actually looking for good news. 
Proverbs 15.30 says, The light of the eyes rejoices the heart there. And it's referring to a friend who comes whose countenance is bright. And they come to you and it rejoices the heart. The smile on their face. The smile in their eyes. The comments that they make actually bring joy to the person receiving that, that countenance. Proverbs 25, verse 25. Like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. So I don't know if you've ever been in a desert, desert region. I've been in a few myself, and you think you have enough water with you, but you, you soon find out that you do not have enough water with you that would work in the southern, southeast, eastern climate, but doesn't work in the dry uh, northwest. And so you find yourself constantly feeling thirsty. Thirst can hit you out of nowhere. And it's when you're very thirsty, it is what you are thinking about. And so we have a text here, and our text is Isaiah 63. 15 through 64. And so let me ask this question. What is this particular text? Well, it's a prayer, and it's an Advent prayer. So what do I mean by Advent prayer? So historically, the church has identified the four Sundays that are actually leading up to Christmas. And Advent is a period of waiting. We're waiting for the coming of the Son. There are two parts to Advent. You have waiting for the incarnation, and then you also have Advent, which is waiting for the second coming of the incarnate Son of God. But it's a period of waiting. And it's not a waiting as, I can't wait till it gets here, but it's actually entering into a period of of anticipation, a period of longing. It's, it can be a very painful wait, uh, waiting. You got a great example of this in Luke 2, verses 25 to 32. You have this, and Luke says, a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Listen to what it says. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for... There's a word waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Jesus Christ. And he came into the temple and when the parents of Jesus brought in the child Jesus to for him... According to, to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he took him up, Simeon took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, and listen to these words, let now your, let, let, uh, Lord, now let your, let, let your servant depart in peace, die, according to your word. For mine eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles 
and for the glory to your people. So here is Simeon, close to the end of his years. The Lord promised you will not die until you see the salvation of the Lord in the child Jesus. And when he finally sees him, his waiting is over. That's what Advent is. It's entering into that period of waiting so that when Jesus actually comes as God incarnate, we find ourselves filled with joy because the consolation of Israel has actually come to us. So an Advent prayer is a prayer of waiting, and waiting is a universal human need, a reality. So we find ourselves waiting in lines, we find ourselves waiting at lights, we find ourselves waiting for a child, a prodigal child, waiting for them to return to the Lord and to return to us, or you have a couple that's waiting for a pregnancy for which they've tried many years, or you have someone who particularly in 2020, is looking for a job and the job's not coming. And so they're waiting for this job to come. Waiting is a universal human reality. But waiting on God is where good news is found. Getting the job that you're waiting for is little g good news, but waiting on God who gives good news is the good news that transforms everything. So this particular prayer that we're going to read here in just a minute is a prayer of waiting for people who are desperate, absolutely desperate for good news. That's what they want. Now here's a, here's a spoiler alert right at the beginning. Spoiler alert. This particular text that we're going to look at this morning is actually fulfilled by Jesus, the Son of God. It's fulfilled by Him. So if if you want to close your ears and close your eyes and not listen until the very end, um, so the spoiler alert isn't um, ruined for you, I'm going to give you the alert right now. So if you don't want to hear it, uh, don't listen, but I'm sure... Uh, you will listen. And here it is. This text is filled, fulfilled by Jesus, the Son of God himself. And it's done so in a very surprising way. So that's where this sermon is headed. And so now let me give you our outline and then we'll read our text. So we have the setting Servants and the Son. Setting, servants, and the Son. So let's read our text, Isaiah 63, verse 15. And this is a prayer. Isaiah, praying for those who would follow him, says, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation what are Where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. So the absence of your zeal and might and the fact that your compassion is not moving toward us in in legitimate concern, here's why. Because for you are our Father. In other words, 
What father wouldn't act on behalf of his children who are in need? That's the question. Though Abraham does not know us, or though Abraham regard us not, and Israel, referring to Jacob, does not acknowledge us, or though Abraham recognize us not, you, O Lord, are our father. It's a key word. And he's a father in a way that Abraham and Jacob never were. You, O Lord, are our father. End of verse 16. Our redeemer from of old is your name. Verse 17. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our heart so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your inheritance, of your heritage. Your people held position for a little while, possession for a little while, the sanctuary. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We have become like those whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood, devours it, and fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, The mountains quaked at your presence from of old. No one has heard or ear perceived. I has seen, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts, listen to this, who acts for those who what? Wait for him. So this is a prayer of waiting of those who are desperate. For good news. So let's look at the setting. What's the setting? So I, I feel like I'm at a severe disadvantage here. So I'm, I'm parachuting in to a massive book. So we're in chapter 63. There's 66 chapters. So I'm parachuting in the very end of this particular book, which makes it particularly challenging. So where is our text set? What's the setting? Where it's set? Now remember, it's, it's a prayer of waiting for a people desperate for good news. And it's prayed by Isaiah for a particular group of people. So Isaiah's not praying it for himself. We'll, we'll see why here in a few minutes. But he's praying it for a particular group of people in the future. So why this prayer and why is it here? So if you think about the book of Isaiah, it's divided into two major sections. So the first section is chapters 1 through 39, and then the second major section is chapters 40 through 66. So Isaiah 1 through 39 was written in Isaiah's day, so 700 years before the coming of Christ, and the big threat that Isaiah was pronouncing upon his generation was Assyrian captivity. So that's 1 through 39. And then you get the chapters 4 through 66, and it's actually written to Isaiah's descendants. So initially we get 
about a hundred years after Isaiah's ministry that chapters 40 and onward were written. So within 40 to 46, though, you have two divisions. You have, you have 40 through 55, which is the curse of Israel going into Babylonian captivity. So he's writing to those saying, you're going to be taken into Babylonian captivity. And then you get for, to 56 through 66, and it's written to a group of people who have been brought back from Babylonian captivity. Not all of them, but some of them, and they're back in the land, and things are not as they had hoped they would be. There is extreme difficulties that they're facing, both internally and with the peoples around them. And they're still occupied by a foreign nation. So they are really struggling with how God's promises are being fulfilled. And they're not being fulfilled as they had anticipated. So there's a difference of emphasis between the first major half of Isaiah's book, 1 through 39, and the second major half of Isaiah's book. 1 through 39 has been called the book of judgment. And sprinkled in there are prophecies of hope, of promises of hope. But the overall tenor of that particular section is one of judgment. And then you get from 40 to 66, and it's been called the book of comfort. So there's a, a massive shift in its emphasis. 1 through 39, judgment. This is God's judgment upon unfaithful Israel. 40 through 66, written to future generations of Israel, is one that's marked by comfort. Now, when you think of 1 through 29, you have approximately 12 woes that are given. 12 woes, and then there's an additional woe that Isaiah actually gives to himself in Isaiah 6, when he sees the Lord high and lifted up, and he says, Woe on, of, on me, for I am a man of unclean lips. So these woes here, if you think, okay, what is, what is the backdrop to these woes? We hear the word woe, and it doesn't really mean uh, the way it meant to Jews in this particular time. So what's the backdrop to this? And that is Deuteronomy 28, where you have God giving woes, curses, to his people and blessings to his people. So if they remain faithful to the covenant and they obey the covenant, God says, these are the blessings that you will receive. But if you are unfaithful to the covenant, these are the curses that you will receive. And the climactic curse is exile, that you will be taken captive by a nation that does not know you, that does not embrace your God, that defames your God. You will be taken captive by them. So a woe is a pronouncement of a curse. So what, what would a Jew, a believing Jew, a devout Jew, like Simeon was in Luke 2, how would he feel internally when hearing the word woe used? So it, it would probably affect you along uh, the lines of if uh, 
your child has been uh, really lethargic for a period of time, just not himself or herself, and um, you become very worried about it. So you take the, your child in to get tested, and they run all kinds of blood tests, and then you, you, you go back home, and then eventually you get the phone call, and your doctor says that we have the results of the blood test. You need to come in today. And that's all they tell you. You need to come in today. How you would feel internally is similar to a devout Jew hearing a woe. Or you're, you're a couple and you are blindsided with your spouse over the phone, totally unexpected, telling you, I want a divorce. What you feel on the inside is similar to how a devout Jew would have felt when hearing this particular woe pronounced. So what are the curses in Isaiah's book, that prophecy that we receive here? So the curse in chapters 1 through 39 is Assyria and captivity. The curse in 40 through 66 is Babylonian captivity. So 40 through 55 is internment. They're taken away out of the land of Israel, placed in Babylon. And then 55 through 66, there is a partial return. Some of them are brought back to the land, but man, it is nothing like they had hoped. It is nothing like they wanted. It was nothing like they expected. And so all they felt was desperation. I think Romans 8 is a, a, a beautiful illustration of this. Romans 8.22 says that creation itself groans because they have been subjected to futility by God himself because of, God, because of Adam's and Eve's sin. Creation, Paul says, groans. There's a groaning for the subjective, the slavery under which they live. And then verse 23 says, and not only creation, but we ourselves groan within ourselves and we're eagerly awaiting the redemption of our bodies. We're waiting for our glorification. So Jesus has come And he's yet to come. And in that in-between stage, we feel the badness of a world gone wrong. So creation itself, with its earthquakes, its tsunamis, is groaning under the curse of sin. And Paul says, we ourselves, in between the times of the birth of Christ and his resurrection and the return of Christ are feeling this same groaning. We're longing for the day when we are actually revealed as the children of God in a resurrected state. Everything in their experience in Isaiah's day and everything in our experience, particularly in a year like this, feels like bad news. It's, it's the feeling of a world gone wrong. And so we have both internal voices which speak bad news to us. 
Why aren't you handling this particular situation better? You've loved teaching all your life and suddenly you hate it and you're struggling with with the fact that you do not enjoy it. Why don't I enjoy it? What is wrong with me? And in the midst of that, you're not finding communion with God or you have a husband and wife in these circumstances and those difficult stresses as a result of 2020 are pressing in upon you and you find yourself responding in ways that you wish. I, I wish God would fix that. I wish the Spirit would heal me of that internal angst and internal strife. But you have those external circumstances and you have those internal voices that are working against us in this period of waiting in which we find ourselves. That's the setting. That's where this prayer comes in. So let's look, number two, at the servants. The servants. Look at Isaiah 63, verse 17. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and, and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? So I, I read that and I think, okay, are they blaming God? Well, that, that's not what's happening. They're not blaming God for making them wander so that they do not fear God. They're not passing blame because just in uh, chapter 64, a few verses later, verses 4, 5, and 6, Isaiah actually confesses Israel's sin. So Israel is actually expressing how the righteous remnant feels when God has been judging them as a people. They're essentially saying, you could have decisively intervened into our circumstances to deliver us from that. You have brought us back from Babylon to Jerusalem, but things aren't as we had hoped they would be. It's still filled with conflict and all we feel is angst. You could have decisively intervened, but you have not. And so this verse here is actually filled with hope. It's an acknowledgement that the only way out of this is if God himself enters into the situation and solves it. And then notice what he says next. Return, return for the sake of, and then notice the word that he uses, the words that he uses here. Return for the sake of your servants. The tribes of your heritage. So that phrase, your servants, um, it has strong connection with what happens previously in Israel's history. So he's just not saying this and saying, hey, we're servants, you're a God, but he's actually tying it into Israel's history as it unfolded from the very beginning. In Genesis 26, you don't need to turn there, but just listen to this. You have Isaac in experience with Abimelech. And uh, Abimelech's not tra- treating him well and uh, doesn't really want him in the land. And his father Abraham had dug a lot of wells, and the Philistines have come in and filled those. And so they're having conflict within the land, within the land of promise. They're essentially functioning as exiles within the land of promise. 
And in order to protect himself from Abimelech, he does what his father Abraham did, and he says, Rebekah is his wife. When he finds out, Abimelech finds out, he's, he's angry, he's upset. Why did you do this? One of my men could have slept with her. And so he's, he's doing the same thing that his father Abraham had done. And so uh, they begin to work through these issues. And Genesis 26 verse 24 says this, And the Lord appeared to Isaac same night and said, listen to this, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. I will do this will bless you. Essentially, I will rescue you. I will set you in a permanent, hopeful place. And I will do it for my servant Abraham's sake. So God is essentially saying to Isaac, you are in what seems to be a very uncertain time. You don't know what to do. The circumstances are always changing. Your circumstances are telling you that what you need to do It's to fear and to worry. But God says, do not fear because I am dealing with you as I did with Abraham. And I'm doing it through the same promise that I gave to Abraham. It may not feel like it in your circumstances right now. You feel alone, but you are actually not alone because I'm doing this for the sake of your servant, of my servant Abraham. You're not outside the story of Abraham. You are actually inside the story of Abraham. So in our text this morning, Isaiah is connecting the devastated people of Israel with the story of Abraham. He's wanting them to think back and say, that's not something in the past, but it's actually a story that has continued and you're finding yourself in that story and what makes the story of Abraham so glorious and wonderful is God made a promise to Abraham and then he settled it with an oath. Where he had the sacrifice of dividing the animals and Abraham was asleep and God's the one that made the oath and said, If I fail to fulfill my promise to you, may I become like one of these animals. And we, by faith, Paul says in Galatians, are descendants of Abraham. Moses did this very same thing. It uses the same same word. And the context of what he does here is really significant to what I think is going on here. Uh, You remember in uh, Exodus 32, you have the sin of the golden calf. Israel didn't take long, and suddenly they have turned away from from God, and they're looking for ways to feel safe and engaged. And they create a golden calf. And then notice... What Moses says, Exodus 32, verse 13, 
Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom I swore by your own self, to whom you swore by your own self, Genesis 15, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised you, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. Abraham was in trouble. People of Israel were in trouble and God rescues them for the sake of his servants Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I remember getting lost. I was in middle school, went on a, uh, a, a hike in the middle of the night. I don't know why we did this. It was pitch black, and I didn't have a flashlight, so I said, they told me stay with a group of friends who have a flashlight. And um, so, so I, I tried my best, and I got lost. And it was uh, really dark, pitch dark, and it was on a hill very thick forest, and before I know it, um, everyone was out of my sight. So I stopped, and I was terrified. I felt like I was left behind. And here's, here's what God does. When you feel like you're left behind, when you feel like you have nothing, no hope, how are they going to find me? You're yelling at the top of your lungs. No one is responding. It gets darker and darker. You start hearing lions and tigers and bears, oh my, although there was no tigers and bears. What do you do? Gospel, gospel says, you are never outside that story. You are always connected with the people of God and God's faithfulness to those particular people. We are not left behind, even when circumstances are the darkness. We're we're still in the story of God's grace to the unrighteous, even as Abraham was unrighteous till he believed the promise and was counted righteous. This is what God does to people who are in very desperate circumstances. Isaac was in hard circumstances. Israel in hard circumstances But God has the story of Abraham in which he works with all of his people. So what's what's Isaiah actually doing in this particular prayer of waiting? So let's look into that. Isaiah 63, verse 16. I want you to notice how Isaiah actually ends this verse. For you are, listen to what this, listen to what he says here. For you are our father. Though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us, you, O oh Lord, are our father. And then he describes who the father is. Our redeemer from of old is your name. So who is this father to whom Isaiah is praying for these future generations? He is their redeemer from the Exodus. So Isaiah is reaching back into the Exodus story. In fact, the verses immediately preceding our text here show that Exodus, the Exodus, is what is most on Isaiah's mind. So back up to Isaiah 63, verse 7. Look at what Isaiah does here. 
Verse 7, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. And then look what he, Isaiah rehearses in verse 9, two verses later. In all their affliction, referring to Israel, he was afflicted. Let me put it this way. In all their affliction, there was affliction to him as redeemer or father. And the angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and he carried them all the days of old. So here's the question. What characterized God's deliverance of Israel back in Egypt? Notice verse 9 again. You have reference to the angel of his presence. You know that's referring to? That's referring to the very face of God coming to them. Yahweh coming to them. This is not, this is not an angel. This, is, this angel is the Lord himself, the messenger who comes to his people with his very presence. So if you can imagine, I've, did the, I've done this with my children in the past, when they were especially younger, they're devastated by some event, and in as much gener- uh, 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 as much um, tenderness as I have, as my heart is is pumping within me out of compassion and pity, I grab the face of my child and I say, "I love you. I am proud of you." That's the face of God to Israel in the midst of their affliction. He is a God who comes in great tenderness, great kindness, great understanding. And all their affliction, he felt their affliction. It was affliction to him. And then he uses this word in verse 39, In his love, in his pity, he redeemed them. Not a cold, calculated God. I made promises to them, so I'm obligated to fulfill those, and I will do it no matter how I feel, because it's my duty. No, it says, in his love, in his pity, he redeemed them. It's revealing to us the heart of the God who actually comes to his people to rescue them through a lengthy period of waiting, 400 years in Egypt under hard labor, the father comes to them in his love and in his pity and he gives them tenderness and kindness. And then he says, end of verse 69, he lifted them up and carried them all their days. As a, here's the, here's the description. As, as a mother lifts 
and carries her child safety. You know what that indicates? Gentleness. The one who slew the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. The one who slew the Assyrian army. Destroyed the Babylonians. Carries his people. He lifts them up. And he carries them with gentleness. With tenderness. Second major division of Israel's, of Isaiah's prophecy begins in verse 40. Remember, he's writing this to a generation that's already in exile. And he's giving them, giving them bad news after bad news, sprinkled in with some good news prophecies. And then listen to what he says in Isaiah 40, verse 1. All this bad news, and then he says this, Comfort, comfort my people says your God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her. Verse 3, a voice cries. Verse 6, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? Verse 9, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald the good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. So what we need is someone to incessantly cry good news to us. We are a people who are desperate for Good news. So let's look at the sun. The sun. You've noticed several times that we have reference to God as our Father in our text. Verse 16, we have it twice. And then outside of our text, 64, verse 8, Isaiah writes, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. There's the hint. And what does he pray to the Father? Look at verse 15. Notice the words that I emphasize. Look down from heaven and see. Father, look down from heaven and see. From your holy and beautiful habitation, where you are, where, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts of your compassion are held back. And then look at 64.1. So look down from heaven and see, and then do this. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down that the mountains might have quaked at your presence. 64.3, when you did awesome things, this is uh, language reminiscent of Exodus, when you did awesome things that we do not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. You go back to the book of Exodus, and when God begins to speak to Pharaoh, speak to his people, he uses the very same language. I looked I saw their affliction, and I came down to rescue. I heard their cry. I know their sufferings. 
Exodus 3, and I have come down to deliver. So Isaiah's borrowing that language that God would do that very same thing again. Because what the Israelites needed in Egyptian bondage was good news. And what they need now is good news. And so he prays, as you looked and came down, will you do the same for us? Father. Father. So what's going on here? The good news that we need, and here's, here's the key point that will help us understand where the sun comes in play here. The good news that we need is found in the very heart of the Father. He feels for us. His heart is filled with pity and compassion for us. Good news of the gospel is found in the very heart of the Father. Remember when I gave you the spoiler alert? Well, here we are. I'm going to unpack that spoiler. Isaiah's prayer is actually realized in the person of Jesus. So we might ask, how is that? How is that actually revealed? So if you want to turn to Mark 1... Turn there, otherwise I'll just read these verses. We're familiar with them through Trent's series. But Mark 1, verse 1 says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. Who is he? He is the Son of God. So the Son of God is going to reveal something to us that is full of good news, that he himself is the good news. And so what we see in him, what we find in him, what is revealed to us through him is to be heard by us as good news. Verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I, am, I send my messenger before your face and who will repair your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way to the Lord, make his path straight. And so Mark actually quotes from more than Isaiah, but he zeroes in on Isaiah because Isaiah's message and its context fills in all the crevices and gives us the contours of what Mark is seeking to say here in the opening of his gospel. Mark intentionally quotes, listen to this, Mark intentionally quotes not from the the book of judgment or bad news, 1 through 39, but from the book of comfort, verses uh, chapter 40 through 66. So listen to how Isaiah 40 begins. Again, comfort, comfort my people, says your Lord. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare or her exile is ended. Mark is introducing, introduces his gospel by stressing the good news of God's compassion and tenderness. This is the primary message, and Jesus is the beginning of the good news. 
And it's given to us by the Father, and it's set within the context of one who in his pity and in his love rescued his people, and now he's doing it again. And so there is comfort to be felt and had, transformational comfort, speaking tenderly to us, his people. And then drop down and look at Mark, what Mark does in verses 9 through 11 in chapter 1. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he had, Jesus had come up out of the water, immediately, here it is, immediately the heavens torn open and the Spirit descended like a dove and a voice from heaven said, You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, what's the significance of that? Matthew and Luke use a different word when referencing what happened to the heavens. Matthew and Luke say the heavens opened. What Mark does is say the heavens were torn open. And do you know what that's coming from? Isaiah 64, 1, when Isaiah prays, Oh, that you would rend the heavens. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down that the mountains might quake at your, at your presence. What's the point? When Isaiah prays that the Father's heart would be stirred toward them in unmatched compassion and tenderness, how does the father answer it? He answers it by giving us his beloved son. Jesus, here it is. Here's the Christmas message. Jesus is the very compassion and tenderness of the father who has come to us as one of us. You want to know the heart of the Father, you look at Jesus. You look at how he relates to those who come to him in sickness. You, he, how he relates to those who are desperate in their need, who are ostracized by their community. People who have nowhere else to turn, they come to Jesus because Jesus is one of Tender, unending compassion to those who know their need. This is the good news of Christmas. For the Son of God to become man means that the Father's compassion and tenderness has touched us never to let go. He is forever man And that means forever he has that pity and compassion. And so when you are in your need and desperate for good news, Jesus is there. He comes toward you. Because he is filled to the full, infinitely larger than what could fill the universe Jesus is filled with compassion and tenderness. And that is the Christmas message. 
There's an old, I'll close with this. There's an old chaplain in World War II. Uh, a young soldier was shot and he was about to die. And, the, and, the, and, and this young teenage boy knew it. And Torrance is trying to care for him. And the boy looks up at him with fear in his eyes and says, Is the God behind Jesus' back like Jesus? Because he saw Jesus as compassionate and full of pity and mercy. And Torrance said, He's exactly like Jesus. Exactly like Jesus. So whatever burdens you carry, whatever bad news just won't leave your brain alone, the good news of Christmas is that the tenderness and pity and compassion of God has come to you in the incarnate person of Jesus for ever. And even now, the Father's right hand, He intercedes for you, knowing what you need most is His tenderness and compassion. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by what your scriptures reveal to us, the good news of the gospel. We acknowledge our need of it, our desire for it, how quickly we are to forget, and yet you have given us a church that puts us in, remind, in reminder weekly of the good news of Jesus. And so work in our hearts, give us faith to see, encourage us, strengthen us, and cause us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. For it is in his name that we pray.